Hello, everyone. We are so excited to announce this year's Principles to Practice Summit on Montessori and Ecological Consciousness. Join us for this transformative summit, which brings together experts, scientists, activists, and educators to explore how Montessori education can nurture environmental stewardship in our students and cultivate a generation of sustainability leaders. Our lineup of speakers, including our keynote speaker, Robin Wall Kimmerer, will present practical strategies for seamlessly integrating Montessori principles with sustainable practices, empowering educators to foster environmentally aware and socially responsible learners. The summit will run June 17th through 19th, but tickets are available now. Head over to courses.trilliummontessori.org for more information. I'm Simi Abdullah, and I'd like to welcome you to Trillium Montessori Talks, the podcast where we dig into the theory and application of Montessori methodology in the classroom and beyond. This podcast is produced in cooperation with Letty Rising and other Trillium course creators. Our goal is to provide you with a weekly dose of tips, tools, and inspiration so you can optimize the classroom experience for your students and yourself. Ready? Let's talk Montessori. Welcome to Montessori Talks, where we talk about all things related to the Montessori elementary environment. And today I have a guest, Jess Gagne, who is a elementary guide and also a friend. We worked together in a network of schools together a few years ago or longer than that because COVID times, for I forget how long it's been, but it's been a little while. And she currently works at Guidepost Montessori in New York City. And Jess, do you teach a lower elementary, upper or six to 12? I can't remember. It's six to 12. So we're all combined. Oh, yay. So I want to bring elementary teachers who are actually in the trenches on to talk about different kinds of things, because I think it's really helpful for people who are listening to be like, that is so relatable. I'm going through that too. Or, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. So Jess has lots of experience. She's been teaching for many years. It's technically like it's 10 years altogether. So... I've just been saying that. It's a nice milestone. So you have been teaching for 10 years. Okay. So let's start with a question here. So what have been some of your students' favorite lessons and why do you think they love them so much? I love this question because sometimes when I get stuck in the classroom, I ask for lesson requests. Or I ask students to reflect on what their favorite lessons have been. And it lets me know which lessons students are more drawn to. So generally, it's science lessons. Students tend to be drawn to science lessons. And maybe it's beginning, the beginning of the year, but they definitely love the story of the universe. And they love the volcano follow-up work with the baking soda and vinegar. The volcano stuff is pretty self-explanatory it's <laughs> whenever you're creating uh, an explosion it's fun everyone wants in but also I had the really fun experience this past year of 
in June. We hadn't given the story of the universe in months. And we fe- we went to this park with a giant slide. And all of a sudden, one of the students was calling me over to the bottom of the slide. And he was at the top. He was like, Miss Jess, Miss Jess, listen to this. I am the universe. And then he proceeded to say exactly what I say in the story of the universe. Like when you speak for the universe, he was like, I am unfathomably old and unfathomably large, but I have not always existed. I was like, oh my gosh, he knows it by heart. (laughs) So there's something that they connect to in those great stories. Obviously, I think it's like the storytelling and uh, they love the follow up. It's hands on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, and they like the experiments, right? That yeah. go along with that. They also love botany lessons. I love botany. So I think part of the reason why it gets so popular every year is because I get really excited about it. But in particular, this last year, they love seeing the stomata under the microscope. They love dissecting flowers. They love the food factory lesson and talking about molecular structure. I think they feel really respected by that content. The mm-hmm. fact that we're sharing that kind of high level science knowledge. They're real scientists. They're doing real work and it feels really important. I know like when I was their age, I also was dissecting flowers in my grandmother's backyard, but no one was telling me the names or the functions of the parts or bringing it into the classroom as something that I was encouraged to do. So yeah, I think just honoring those natural, that natural drive for exploration and like connection to the real world and storytelling and all of that. And living in the cold North, do you strategize when you are do offering those botany lessons? When I lived in California, I mean, you could just pull out leaves and flowers all the time, pretty much. So yeah. I'm guessing they you pick more favorable times of the year to get started on that, or maybe not. I don't know. No, we do. I mean, in the past two years, we have started a lot of our botany work in the spring because it is really exciting. And we also, we walk to Brooklyn Bridge Park for recess. So on our way to the park in spring, you know, we say, okay, look for the crocuses and whoever's going to see the first crocus, that's the first sign of spring. And so we know like scientific names of all the plants around here and they love to look out for that. But I think also this year, because we were so into that flower dissection and studying seeds and doing classification that ran all the way up through the last day of school. We were doing like really serious botany work. So I think it's going to continue over into this fall as well until we can't, you know, really do it anymore. Ah, wonderful. Well, my second question a little bit was answered by the first question, maybe. And that is, are there any particular kinds of follow-up work that your students have especially enjoyed? Yeah, so they love the science work. And I think they're really drawn to all of that. But also, in the past couple of years, they have especially loved geometry and getting creative with geometric design and using like each time we give a new lesson, they incorporate I had a group of students who invented these characters called geometric creatures when they were doing geometric design in September. And all throughout the year, any new geometry lesson they had all the way up through like Pythagoras, 
they incorporated it into this book series. They're writing scripts for a TV show. They had posters. They had a theme song. And so they just brought everything in and they were really inspired by any new geometry work because it connected to this world building mm-hmm. that they were doing, which is really cool. You're kind of talking about those specific follow-up, like kind of like, I guess, activities, which are like booklets and posters. And would you say your students liked making booklets a lot? Yeah, they love books. And that's what I was going to say, too, is like another thing that we really talk about a lot is writing and we read a lot of books and we talk about author's choices. And another thing that they really loved was writing books collaboratively. Towards the end of the year, they discovered on Google Docs that they could ask each other for feedback and that they could see each other's feedback as suggestions and either accept or reject them and talk about it. And I actually didn't even give those lessons. They just kind of discovered that on their own, which was amazing. So they started writing stories together as a class, like chapter books. Wow. So that was really cool. And we also have, like, we really revere the creative process for writing books. So um, we have them do like a book plan, like storyboarding. Mm -hmm. And then after they storyboard, then they can do kind of one page at a time and, and really make it beautiful. And then they laminate it and they can bind it and then it can be in the classroom library. So really like elevating that work that way and, and seeing models from other students. And we wrote a class book of fables last year, made that type of writing work really popular and mini booklets. We love mini booklets. They love building models and dioramas, anything that ends in a presentation. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you also have like a little portfolio of like exemplars or models that you can show them uh, for things to get them inspired. That is a great idea. Yes, we have a student. I have it. I mean, we're not, you can see me, but nobody else can see me. (laughs) Uh, student work samples. Yes. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So sometimes somebody is stumped or I have, you know, they, they want to see something someone has done or I have an idea or I'm giving a lesson and I want to show a model. So we have lots of things in here. We also have models of just like what, what portfolio work should look like. So if you have a lesson on fractions and you want to make a, a, a version of your follow-up work for your portfolio. You're going to make your title really colorful. You're going to uh, incorporate the definitions. You're going to label everything. You're going to make a border and make it beautiful. So we, yeah, we do have uh, lots of models in the classroom. That is a great thing to bring up because sometimes, you know, when you're like, okay, do a follow-up work. And then it's kind of like, well, what does that look like? How, where do I start? Or, you know, sometimes there is a clear vision that children have, but especially the younger ones, and they're still kind of figuring out like what's possible with follow-up work. And sometimes you don't know what's possible unless you have uh, an example. So it's great that you have a three ring binder and you have samples in there and you have sheet protectors and they're like, they can flip through it and look at it. And I love that idea. I love it. Very cool. I like it. So shifting in a slightly different direction, how do you help children who are new to Montessori develop independence in the first weeks? And this could be the first weeks of school, or maybe you have students come in the middle of the year, even, you know, a lot of people are like, How do you do that? How do you get those kids becoming more independent? So what kind of strategies do you use that work for you? Well, I definitely think that's something that is kind of always or still a work in progress for us, at least. We have a lot of students. Last year, we had a stretch for, I think it was about like five or six months of the year when we had a new student every week and it was never 
planned. It was just very like surprise. Um, <laughs> and none of them. And that's how it, and it, it, that's how it can be in many schools throughout the year these days, especially. Definitely. And, and when they don't have Montessori experience too, it's like we return to discussing our routines and procedures and our classroom commitments. And it's a great refresh for everybody. So I think that's something we're still working on, but I actually do think it relates to having those models in the classroom because like you said, they might not know all the directions they can take their follow-up work, especially if they are actually older, like upper elementary children, and they're coming from a traditional school and they have a lesson on fractions and we say, okay, so how do you want to follow up? They think, well, what page do you want me to turn to in the textbook? And since we don't have a textbook, it can be really helpful for them to see all those models from former students. And some of them are teacher created models as well. And in addition to that, it can help them to be paired with an older child or just a more experienced child, somebody who's like really creative and excited about doing follow-up work and, and who has lots of ideas. And often those children love to have somebody to get on board with their idea. They want to write a play and they need somebody to be casting director or to write the script or to help them paint the scenery or whatever. So I think those pairings work really well and, and both children get excited and then they feel like they have like an instant friend because they've been working together on something important. So I think those are good. And I think like, for, especially with um, younger children too, we help them plan every morning when they're when they're making their work plan. We don't just give that responsibility to them to, you know, we don't throw them in the deep end right away. We help them plan and they have more conferences than the average student might have in a given week. Just talk about how they think their work is going and are they staying on top of their goals and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so, so planning, uh, more planning, more conference time, getting everyone together and revisiting those agreements and systems, which is always a good refresher anyway, right? And it's such a good excuse like, oh, we have, you know, new students in the classroom. It's a perfect time for us to be talking about you know, and, and, and maybe soliciting their ideas too. who remembers, you know, what we do for this or who can share what we do with that. And that can be a nice cementing of that, particularly for the kids who, who struggle with remembering those things. Right. And then offering them um, connections with other students in the classroom and models of what's possible for them to do. I think Mm -hmm. that's, those are pretty much, that's the summary of what you said. And I think those are really great places to start. So speaking of systems, can you think of any systems or processes that you have implemented in your classroom that has been a game changer or something that's worked really well? I think, you know, I was thinking about this one. and It's interesting because generally, I think it's anything that gives the children more responsibility and ownership over their environment. I think as adults, we tend to want to micromanage a lot of things, but the children want to have that responsibility as well. And it really drives them to be their best selves and to to keep their environment, an environment that they want to be in every day, which is really cool. Some things that came to mind were for the longest time, we just kind of had free snack and we just just said, yeah, have snack, you know, between this time and this time, whenever you're hungry and wherever you want to sit, but having a designated snack table and having the students take ownership over like, okay, what are the guidelines around the snack table? How long do we want somebody to be sitting for snack? How do we want to decide? They kind of decided all of that and they made a really beautiful 
poster of the guidelines and that worked really well for our schedule. Uh, Um, I just sometimes having them develop the system is like, first of all, it makes less work for you in some ways. And they come up with a lot better ideas than we do sometimes. And especially with that collaborative experience with like many minds together. Yeah. So I think that was a huge one for us last year. And something that I borrowed from my colleague, Celine, who I worked with. um, Yeah, I remember her. Uh Um, So she had this practice of she went around with, uh, well, she's um, Canadian. And so she calls the trash the bin. Yes. And so she would go around with, I don't know if she went around with the trash or if she went around with a container and she would kind of like joke and tease like, oh, the bin monster is coming for anything that didn't get cleaned up. And I would tell my students about that. And my upper elementary students perceived this as a bin monster. And so we got giant googly eyes. I don't know where it is right now. We got giant googly eyes and like hot glued them onto a bin. And it's somebody's job at the end of the day when jobs are done. And the expectation is that everything has been put away. So there shouldn't be a pencil underneath the table. There shouldn't be somebody's workout. They can go around and they put things in the bin. And then in the morning, in morning meeting, the person who left it out or somebody can volunteer for community service. If it's a pencil or a color pencil, Prisma colors often ended up in there. And that was mm. big drama. Mm, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Somebody can volunteer to do some community service. So maybe we need to deep clean the grammar boxes, or maybe somebody needs to help children's house with a task that they have, or maybe we really need to wipe down the microwave extra or something like that. And so people will volunteer to do community service in order to earn those items back for the classroom. That was also a huge game changer for us, especially last year. A lot of students who were having trouble developing like empathy for other people around them and like their work and their environment. All of a sudden, when we were offering community service, those students would be the first to volunteer and they would like enthusiastically engage in the community service. And then when it was time for them to get something out of the bin, they didn't choose their own items. They would choose somebody else's item. And I think oh. they really loved the feedback they got because it was genuine. Like, uh-huh. and it, it was sometimes my things. <laughs> like if, if your indoor shoes end up in the bin and you're really busy that morning, you have a lot of follow-up and your friend says, look, I got your indoor shoes out of the bin. You're like, oh, thank you. <laughs> Oh, that is so sweet. I wonder if they were, as a side note, I wonder if they have been more motivated to do that because, you know, we were closed down in pandemic for a while and now everybody's kind of finally back in the swing of things and it's, they're just feeling eager to connect with their community in any way and really be a part of it. I think that's definitely possible. Yeah. Yeah, For a lot of the younger ones, you know, they, that this may have been like their first school experience. Absolutely. Well, the last question I wanted to ask you today is if you could go back and talk to your new teacher self, that means going on the way back machine and yourself (laughs) when you were a new teacher, what advice would you give to yourself? I was actually looking through my portfolio from when I graduated from my teaching program in college. And it was really funny I had a lot of practical experience, but I was just really like in my head a lot about theory and just really concerned with doing everything by the book. And so I think I, my, I guess maybe this is 
several different pieces, but I, I think yeah, I'm say, add to it. <laughs> like the main thing is just like to slow down a little bit and like breathe and observe and actually see how the students are interacting with the lessons and the environment and the materials. And then to be patient, I think I was coming from traditional education. I think I was always very concerned about hitting a certain milestone every semester or every month. And over time, I've seen that, like the the value of that patience, where if you just say, you know what, this child isn't ready, and they're going to get there on their own time, that it often they go through that explosion of growth, then it all just happens at once when they're ready. And it pays off that, you know, you were patient, because it's so much more meaningful for them to be actually experiencing that growth and that development rather than it being forced. I love what you're saying right there because, you know, growth does not happen like on somebody else's timetable, but as a society, we have a lot of expectations about that timetable being in place and people meeting that timetable. And some people will, but, you know, if they were left to their own devices, they might go faster or slower or, you know, move it all sorts of different rates. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite things about the Montessori method in general. And this is also my first experience long-term in a six to 12 elementary. And I think that it's really solidified that concept. I've really seen it when seeing these children have the freedom to be here from first, I mean, it's kindergarten, really, because they some of them come up from children's house when they're still five years old, to have that freedom to be here from kindergarten through, you know, sixth grade or from age five to age 12, they feel safe. And they feel like they it's really about them growing and learning and and about their development and their self construction. And it's not about any pre prescribed path that they're on. And so yeah, we do see a lot of children move faster. And that brings them a lot of pride too. Wow. I mean, that also just shows the benefit of the mixed age classroom um, and just seeing things come together year over year, whether it just be a three-year mixed age or a six-year mixed age. It's just amazing to see that. And it's a special thing. And, And I'm even seeing on you know, social media or whatever, that there are research showing that, you know, having the same teacher two years in a row is highly beneficial to children. And it's like, I know Maria Montessori (laughs) has been talking about this for years and we have been watching this, right? So gosh, you brought up so many great points. Well, thank you so much, Jess, for joining us today. Again, this is Jess Gagne. She is an elementary guide and thank you for taking your time to meet with me and talk about things related to the Montessori elementary classroom. And I look forward to seeing you again in person sometime. Yeah, I hope so too. Come visit me in New York. Absolutely. (laughs) See you later. Okay, see you later. Thanks for tuning in to Trillium Montessori Talks. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will love the practical and actionable classroom management advice in the Montessori Principles to Practice webinar libraries. Head to trulliammontessori.org forward slash podcast for details and to learn about all the ways we can help you optimize your Montessori work. We'll be back soon with more Montessori inspiration. In the meantime, please help other Montessori guides 
find this podcast by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast listening platform. Thank you for being a part of the Trillium community.